As the flu season approaches, doctors and health authorities in the U.S. are urging people not to delay getting their flu vaccinations. Uh, they have quelled rumors that they are short of flu vaccination supply, but they've emphasized that you do not want to take the chances of having two viruses in your body. Now, there's no doubt that COVID-19 is still a looming threat in our world today. Experts have predicted a uh, flu outbreak coupled with uh, COVID-19 may create what's known as a twindemic situation. So uh, to give us more analysis, we're pleased to be joined by Professor John Lynch from the Department of Medicine, uh, the Division of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the University of Washington on the line. Hello. Hello there. Thanks for having me on. Professor Lynch, thank you very much uh, for joining us. So as it stands right now, we have close to uh, or uh, at around 31 million total coronavirus cases uh, around the world. The U.S. uh, does lead uh, the world. uh, This is an ignoble distinction, to say the least, but they have nearly 7 million and around 200,000 deaths. I know that uh, the rest of the world looks at the U.S. with dismay and and kind of looks at how they've handled the situation so far. Can you give us a better uh, idea of how the U.S. has been coping with uh, COVID-19? Well, I think you just laid it out pretty nicely. Uh, We haven't done a good job at all. Um, I really think that early on we didn't do a good job at the national, sort of federal level in the United States of coordinating a clear and effective response. And we're just seeing the ramifications of that now. Would I know that there's a political element to this, and I think a lot of people who are in the, in the health field feel that that should not be a, uh, a consideration, but uh, there seems to be a push on, on one side of the uh, uh, aisle that uh, getting a vaccine out as early as possible, preferably uh, before uh, November 3rd, uh, Election Day in the U.S., uh, would be a good thing. And people have been talking about this October surprise of having a vaccine available uh, to the masses. Uh, what would your timeline be for vaccine development to, as it stands right now, just uh, from the science? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that we, we do want to be thoughtful and really take this apart from uh, political issues and really focus on the science. And if we do do that, it would be absolutely astounding to be able to get to a vaccine, you know, really this year in 2020, something that's effective uh, and that is safe and that is available and that we know actually works. And I think that last part is actually crucial. If we push out a vaccine that we do not know is effective and may have some adverse effects, we're going to actually get ourselves into a worse position. And what that means is that if we have a vaccine that doesn't work very well or certainly has some downsides, some harm, yeah. you can just imagine what next year is going to look like. We're not going to be able to evaluate a truly effective vaccine, and there's going to be more people who don't want to take it because of the harms that were experienced. So, you know, personally, I don't think we're going to be ready with something anytime in 2020. So this idea of an October rollout of a vaccine, I, I know that there have been uh, some voices saying that maybe they can just even announce that a vaccine has been developed, but uh, the distribution will uh, take place later this year, but try to maximize the political effect. From what you've seen and, and from your years of ex- expertise, there's no way there is going to be a rollout of a vaccine in the U.S. in October. I'd be astounded that it would, there's no vaccine that we've ever been able to evaluate, you know, to develop and test out populations and to prove its effectiveness and its safety in such a short timeline. Um, I think that any announcement like that would be, again, mind-blowing. Mm. And we need to look at uh, leaders like Dr. Tony Fauci and even Dr. Redfield from the CDC. They've all said, 
we're looking at next year. You know, and I said next year, maybe even January, February, but something in the next. Okay. Literally, October is just around the corner. It's just would be amazing, astounding, right. and uh, fairly unbelievable. Okay, let's talk about flu season then, because a lot of people have been confused about COVID-19 symptoms and flu symptoms. They do share uh, some things uh, in terms of uh, what presents in the body, dry coughs, fevers, chills, uh, fatigue, body aches. And, uh, you know, you might have a runny nose or a a scratchy throat, things that are a symptom of the common flu. uh, And that is um, exclusive to the flu, some people believe, but other people say that that's not necessarily the case. There's There's a lot of... Speculation, and again, it does get down to uh, rumor-mongering and um, not science-based speculation in regards to various symptoms. Do you have a sort of rule of thumb for our listeners of how you can differentiate um, whether you suspect you might have COVID-19 versus just the ordinary flu? Yeah, the short answer is no. Okay. And I think the reason you sort of you know spun the question that way in terms of you know there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of people saying this or that, it's because we don't actually have any data. We don't have good science showing us that there's very discreet ways to tell the difference from someone just showing up in an emergency department or a clinic. What I would tell you right now is that they both look extremely similar. There are some very small differences, like the pace of the infection seems to be a little slower in COVID-19. And certainly you've heard about the reports of people losing their sense of smell or their sense of taste. And those don't really happen in influenza. So maybe there's some subtle elements, but I would say the overwhelming majority of people, you will not be able to tell without testing. We just got through talking about vaccines and how it's not likely to have something uh, before the year 2020 is over. Uh, And there have been warnings that uh, you don't want to infect your body with uh, two different viruses, whether you're going to get the flu vaccine, which a lot of people do on a on a yearly basis, and then also inject yourself with a uh, COVID-19 vaccine. But that leads to that wider question. Um, As we head into flu season and people who are uh, more susceptible, maybe their immune systems aren't uh, quite as strong, is it possible that a person could get uh, both the flu and COVID-19 at the same time? And then, again, that's the dilemma is how do you get treated for that? So you might suspect you have the flu, but yeah. later you might find out that uh, you could be uh, COVID-19 positive. Um, is there some kind of protocol in place among health authorities to deal with that kind of situation? Well, you're asking two really, really important questions. The first one is, you know, can you get both? And the answer is we don't know, okay. right? When you look at the southern hemisphere, they're just not seeing much influenza. And that may be a result of maybe what we call viral interference, maybe COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2 virus sort of occupies the same space. Um, but what's more likely happening is the masking, the distancing, the hand hygiene is having a really good effect. At the same time, you just describe what's happening in the United States, and, uh, you know, we're not doing so great in all those things. And so what we're really pushing here, certainly in my facility, my hospital, and certainly the U.S., is we got to stick with the hand hygiene, the masking, and so forth. But the flu vaccine is going to be critically important because we need everything we can do to prevent influenza from, you know, acting like it normally does in a normal year. The second part of your question is what happens if you get both? We don't know. We don't know whether it's worse. We don't know how often it happens. But it will be complicated because, like you said, they look very similar. And only testing is going to be able to tell us which one you have. And there are some treatments that were given for people who are in the hospital, particularly steroids. You may have heard of the drug dexamethasone. Mm-hmm. We know from studies um, that dexamethasone actually makes flu worse in, uh, in patients who are in the hospital. So what happens if we actually truly do have people with flu and COVID-19 who are in the hospital? 
unknown you know, answer to that. It's going to be a significant problem, though. All right. Well, uh, certainly a very alarming situation. And obviously, uh, uh, everybody here in Korea uh, has their thoughts and prayers for uh, everybody dealing with the situation over in the U.S. Professor John Lynch, uh, thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate your expertise. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. Good luck to everyone. That was Professor John Lynch from the uh, Department of Medicine at the University of Washington. Uh, Let's go ahead and continue our discussion. Pleased to have joining us from the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, Professor James Cherry. Hello. Hi, I'm here. Professor Cherry, thank you very much for joining us. So uh, we just got through talking about uh, the flu season and how there is a concern. Um, A lot of people are afraid of what now uh, is being termed a uh, twindemic uh, and so I think as the name implies, it means that uh, two viral outbreaks, uh, COVID-19 and influenza. If a uh, twindemic were actually to become a reality, Professor Cherry, uh, what implications would that have uh, in our daily lives, uh, which have already been disrupted by COVID-19? Uh, well, I think first that if you look at what's happened in the Southern Hemisphere, that they, the Southern Hemisphere has had very light flu this year, suggesting that with the COVID-19, there, there's been virtually no flu, hmm. and that the two don't seem to exist together. And so from what we know from the Southern Hemisphere, um, that there may not, it may not be likely to have the two together. Uh, you know, viruses have niches, um, and uh, that the COVID-19 has, has pushed away what would normally be occur- occurring in our summer, hmm. which would be enteroviruses. But usually, with the exception of flu and um, respiratory syncytial virus, the viruses don't usually occur together. Hmm. Uh, and from what we see from the COVID-19, uh, it seems that it um, it was so powerful that there was virtually no flu in the Southern Hemisphere this year. So your expectation is that uh, similarly in the Northern Hemisphere, as uh, we get into the colder seasons, that uh, you could reasonably expect to see a similar phenomenon where uh, it's a bit of a zero-sum situation and uh, people who are kind of in the midst of a uh, a raging pandemic like COVID-19 and certainly in the U.S. very much in the midst of of a bad uh, situation with the outbreak that the flu virus won't really have the space to be able to uh, attack people's immune systems as much uh, this time around, and that is generally the consensus? Uh, well, that's what that's what it suggests from South America. Hmm. But, of course, we'll have to wait and see uh, what happens in the Northern Hemisphere and, and, in, and particularly in, in the United States. Uh, the other thing, of course is what we've done to control Mm -hmm. COVID-19 has been quite effective. Uh, Specifically, the number one thing is social distancing. And, of course, we know that works with flu. The wearing of masks, that works. And that worked 100 years ago with the 1918 influenza. So those things 
um, may, you know, could decrease the possibility of flu in addition to decreasing the number of infections with COVID-19. Let's talk about vaccination then, because uh, the U.S. CDC has called for uh, a dramatic increase of flu vaccinations across the country, some medical facilities even offering free flu shots. Korea uh, going through a, a similar situation here, pushing for similar measures, including trying to get as much access to uh, free flu vaccines, particularly for uh, vulnerable populations like the elderly and young children. In your view, is it, um, you have stated that you don't think the twindemic phenomenon is likely to occur, but is it important to be vaccinated from uh, influenza in light of the absence of any uh, COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, Very definitely. I mean, everybody, flu vaccine, in the United States, flu vaccine is recommended every year from everybody over the age of six months. Uh, And that it, it, in my in the case at UCLA, you can't even work. You can't even come to the hospital if you haven't had your flu shots. Um, and so it is very important, uh, and we certainly can do better uh, at the national level because, and, and particularly getting the flu vaccine to the people who need it the most, which are older people. And then people with um, with cardio or um, uh, with uh, respiratory problems or cardiac problems. Do you um, worry about the? We've always had this sort of anti-vaxxer movement and skepticism with vaccines and and these conspiracy theories about it causes things like autism, for example. But it does feel like that anti-vaccine voice has gotten stronger, particularly in light of this push for COVID-19 vaccine and the skepticism over uh, the Trump administration's uh, intentions in regards to that, that uh, this prevalent kind of uh, skepticism may actually... uh, be a detriment to the number of people who should be taking the uh, flu vaccine but refuse to do so on those kind of uh, shaky grounds? Well, the, I mean, the, the anti-vaccine movement has obviously been very important in, um, in as far as measles, uh, uh, MMR yeah. vaccine. Um, with influenza, I'm not so sure, uh, particularly... Um, uh, it, uh, I just don't know, but I don't think it's been that big a deal, mm. uh, particularly for older adults. Um, but um, and the other thing, of course, is vaccinating pregnant women where flu is particularly bad, um, and uh, and we also, of course, want to give Tdap uh, to prevent pertussis and the and and um, uh, to give antibodies to young babies so they don't get pertussis in the first two months of life uh, when it's most likely to be fatal. In terms of uh, the vulnerable populations, and we we talked about the elderly uh, and the need to to get vaccinations, also to uh, be uh, socially distant and and make sure that uh, uh, infection rates, uh, to the extent possible, are low uh, among uh, that vulnerable population. 
kids can also be silent spreaders, and I know that there's been this uh, perception that kids don't really get affected by COVID-19 or uh, maybe uh, to the uh, to a lesser extent uh, the flu. But uh, the fact that kids do need to be kept safe, and you do sometimes have elderly teachers and more vulnerable people and staff. Working at schools, what overall precautions do you think need to be made? In in the U.S., um, uh, it is back to school season where there's a new calendar, uh, a new school year for for most most uh, grades. And in the in in Korea, we've had this basically uh, complete uh, online learning environment now for the kids for the most part. Uh, what precautions do you think need to be taken and have been taken so far? Well, our back to school is a, is it is. There's a lot of people putting information into that, um, and I think that in it's not going to happen. It's all going to be online, and certainly in Los Angeles, and in and also in in New York, in New York City, um, and other places that where there's less uh, COVID nineteen. People are going back to to school, and I think there's ways to make that um, reasonably safe. Um, again, for the students all to be wearing masks. If you cut down the class size, um, if the teachers wear face shields, um, because you know there's a lot of students who have hearing problems. And so nobody realizes that, but they read lips. Mm. And so if the teacher wears a face shield, which is perfectly good for protection for, for he or she, uh, but then the students can, can uh, understand what she's saying much better. And so, but anyway, for back to school, if, there's not a, if it's in an area where the, the COVID-19 has decreased, um, I think you can work it out um, so that there's, uh, by cutting the class size and being very careful at recess and, and to actually structure recesses sort of like a gym class rather than a free recess so students, students wear their masks and continue to social distance. And w- in terms of as we head into fall, as we head into uh, winter, uh, the idea that a twindemic maybe is not as likely, just judging from what's happened in the southern hemisphere, do you worry about this uh, so-called second wave that occurred? You, me- you mentioned the 1918 uh, Spanish influenza outbreak where uh, there was a, certainly a second wave that was more devastating in terms of uh, the numbers of people who, who suffered and, and uh, eventually died from it. Uh, is that a similar worry as we head into fall and winter in the U.S.? Uh, def- well, a second wave is a definitely definite worry, and one of the things again that happened in 1918 was there were marked differences as far as the second wave, uh, and it has been worked out now that it was places that were, you know, wearing masks and were actually social distancing, and they let up their guard on that. Right, and those are the places that had the okay. big big second waves. Right. And so that, um, the same thing would be true for the uh, COVID-19, and we've already seen that. We're going to have to leave it there. Well. All right. Uh, Unfortunately, we did run out of time, Professor Cherry, but uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us, and hopefully we can connect with you again soon.
Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.